So last week I made it through one and one half Beatitudes. So we will pick up. If you brought your notes from last week, you've got the meekness part on the bottom. The, they're also repeated on the notes I handed out tonight. But we will continue to work through this. And as always, if you have questions, comments, shout them out, get my attention. Uh, I want this to be a uh, an informal but enriching time together in the Word. So let's read again Matthew 5, chapter 1. Or, Chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew records, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I've said this a number of times, I'm going to say it again because I want you to remember it. That, that phrase, went up on the mountain, is Matthew's way of saying Jesus is who? The new Moses, right? Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish people who would understand the Old Testament, and so he's identifying Jesus with Moses, and not with Moses as in Moses was greater than Jesus, but Moses as in Moses said, one is greater than me is coming. And Matthew's saying, this is the one who is greater than Moses that has come. And again, it says his disciples came to him. So he's speaking to the disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is to Christians, but we also keep in mind that the crowds are with him. He's on this mountainside, the sea is behind him, and the crowd is spread out in front of him. And as he teaches the disciples, the crowds hear. So they're hearing all these things. And it says, he opened his mouth in verse 2, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, again, these build on each other. This is not a haphazard list. When you get to hunger and thirsting for righteousness, we don't do that if we aren't poor in spirit, if we are not mourning over our sin, if we are not meek in our spirits. We'll never hunger and thirst for righteousness. But just as a question, how many of you, well, I'm going I'm to assume this is true of you, so no need, to, no need to raise your hand. I was going to say, how many of you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I'm just going to assume you want to do that. Let me ask you this. What do you think it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Desire? To walk rightly with God, to desire to walk rightly with God. Yeah. Well, the hunger and thirst to walk as rightly with God as you and me. Right. Right. Have, are y'all familiar with the um, newer phrase, hangry? <laughs> you know, you get angry because you're so hungry, right? You're so hungry, it starts to affect other parts about you. And so, you know, while I hope we don't get hangry spiritually, I would say that it, it should say something to us if our hunger for righteousness is affecting other parts of our life or if it isn't affecting other parts of our life. You see, if I am hungry for righteousness, I'm going to say no to other things. They may be good things, but I might say no to them in order to prioritize time with God. If I'm thirsting after righteousness, that means I need it for my health. I need it to be satisfied. 
And so I'm going to say no to something else, even if it's a good thing, so that I might be satisfied. But before we can hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have to understand meekness. And so you see on your notes there, meekness is a word that we don't often use anymore. It's not really a respected characteristic in our culture. When we think about meek, I think about small, quiet, passive. I put the Merriam-Webster definition for you. There's three of them in there. The first one is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Being deficient in strength or courage. That's kind of what I think about. And third, not violent or strong. Right, think about meek, it kind of rhymes with weak, and they, you know, those, those terms kind of go together in, in our minds. When I think about the first one, which is the closest to what Jesus is talking about, it says, enduring injury with patience and without resentment, or without hating, without being angry about it. Now, I can think of a lot of times in my life where I have endured injury, whether it's a physical injury or an emotional injury. I've endured pain and suffering in my life, just like you have. You all have endured pain and suffering. Some of you are enduring it right now. But how many of us can say that we endure those things without resentment? How many of us can say that we endure pain and suffering with patience? We live in a very distracted culture because we have... uh, these things. And once you get these things, they talk you into strapping one on your wrist. And then it just gets real annoying because every time your wrist buzzes, you look down and you're like, ah, I'm just going to take it off. And then you remember I paid money for that, so you put it back on. <laughs> it's just a whole thing. But we're distracted sometimes. We get distracted. We're not patient people. We want things now. But when suffering comes on us, when hardship comes on us, what do we want? We want healing. We want it to be gone. If I need money, I want to open my mailbox and find a check in there that meets the need and then some, right? And I want it yesterday. Rarely, I think, do we encounter those things and naturally say, all right, this is a chance for patience. Rarely, I think, do we encounter suffering in our life and say, God brought this into my life. That's not a natural response. Meekness is not a natural human response in the way that Jesus is teaching it. Poorness of spirit, which we talked about, is allowing God to empty, our, empty us of all of our natural desires, all of our natural ways, and allowing him to fill us with the spirit. Mourning is not talking about the drab of mourning, but being broken over sin, being broken that I have sin in my life, that you have sin in your life, that we are plagued by sin in this world. And meekness, meekness is not a natural human characteristic, the way in which Jesus is teaching. Even Merriam-Webster's definition is not natural. We do not naturally endure suffering patiently and without resentment. Most of the time we take on the woe is me. Most of the time we take on the this is not fair. Most of the time we get upset. But meekness, the third bullet point, Well, actually, I deleted some of those. So if I say stuff that's not right, just forgive me. Meekness in the Lord's teaching does not assume weakness, passiveness, or lack of courage. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying be weak and passive Christians. It actually goes quite well with strength and leadership and courage. 
Meekness in the way that Jesus is talking about it goes quite well with leadership, strength, and courage. It is at its core a right view of God and a right view of one's self. Meekness is a right view of who God is and who I am. Now, if you paid attention to my first sermon in Mark, you'll know that that's Mark's desire to help us see who is God and who am I. If you come into my office and then you go back out, over the door is a plaque. It's really a piece of wood with a painting on it, but the painting is a quote. And the quote says, Wisdom, insofar as it's true and solid wisdom, consists entirely of two things. Wisdom consists of two things. Knowledge of God and knowledge of myself. And in that order. If I don't rightly know who God is, I won't rightly know who I am. Meekness is the same thing. It's having a right view of God and a right view of myself. Meekness is the picture of the, the man or humankind in right relationship to God and to one another. Meekness, Christian meekness, is a right relationship with God, but also a right relationship with one another. You see, if, if I'm understanding God rightly, and I understand that He's holy and that He's set apart and that He is entirely in control and that he's entirely without sin and that he has come to save sinners and that first timothy 1 15 that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost if i understand that then that's going to affect how i view you because now i realize between the two of us i'm the biggest sinner and you're realizing that between the two of us you're the biggest sinner you're the one in need of the most grace, and I'm the one in need of most grace. So who are we to be prideful with each other? Who are we to be angry with each other? Who are we to withhold forgiveness and grace and mercy from each other? Because when we do that, what we're saying, when we harbor anger towards one another and resentment, and we let sin rest in between us, we let it exist in between us, what we are saying is, I'm choosing to not understand God. I'm choosing to offend the gospel. Because if I rightly understand God, that God has reconciled me to him, and I'm the biggest sinner, then he can certainly reconcile you to him. And then there's nothing withholding reconciliation between us. So meekness is understanding who God is and who I am, and how we relate to one another. Now I do this, uh, that's part of what I do in in premarital counseling. I talk to... uh, couples about sin. That's, that's kind of the bulk of my premarital counseling. So if you're already married, you know sin lives inside of marriage. And I try to, I try to help these young couples that are just gung-ho about all the excitement of marriage. Not that I'm trying to damper that excitement, but to help them realize you're about to marry a very large sinner. And your spouse is about to marry you, a very large sinner. And the way that marriage works, the way that there's harmony in marriage is when both spouses agree on 1 Timothy 1.15, that they are the biggest sinner. That they're the ones in need of the most grace. Now, I've only been married 12 years. Some of you have been married a long time. Hang on. Ronnie told me at lunch today, 54? 51. They've been married 51 years. Now, I'm just, I'm just going to guess. Grace has been a part of that. Jan. You see, marriage is a picture of the gospel. Paul says that. 
He says, I'm referring to the mystery of how God loves the church. That's how marriage is supposed to function. And so understanding what God is saying here about meekness, meekness is an, is an essential marital quality. But even more than that, it's an essential Christian quality. We can't be in right relationship to one another if we are not meek. So I want to look at a few examples, a few biblical examples of meekness. And I've got them listed there for you. I did not put all of the scriptural references, so sorry about that. But the first one we see is Abraham. Abraham is the, the patriarch, the founder of the nation of Israel. God promises him, gives him an incredible promise. I mean, he's 100 years old when God gives him a child and says, you know, I'm going to multiply him more numerous than the stars in the sky. And then he does it. But in his dealings with his son-in-law Lot, or nephew Lot, sorry, he let the younger man lead the way and make the choice without murmuring against him. You see, in that culture, it would have been right for the older man to make the choice. And a lot of times, that's still how we function. And Abraham had every right in this moment to assert himself. And yet, we see him exercising meekness by submitting himself to Lot, not murmuring against him. He didn't, he didn't, have, these ang- he didn't have these feelings of anger towards him. He let Lot lead the way, and Abraham followed when he could have done otherwise. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says that Moses was the meekest of all men. That's pretty incredible. There's two of those kind of statements in the Bible. The the Bible says that Moses is the meekest of all men. Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest of men. So when the Bible says some of those things, we should take note and say, all right, what was it about these guys that was important? Now, if you know anything about Moses, Moses was a man's man. Moses was not a weak, passive little guy. Moses Moses was a strong man, a strong leader, a risk-taking leader, a faith leader. And the Bible says that he was the meekest of all men. And his meekness was in this, that he was totally submitted to God. Totally submitted to God. Now, Moses failed. We know that. Nobody in the Bible except for Jesus, is perfect. And the Bible, thankfully, now, I don't know about y'all, I am so thankful the Bible is honest about how sinful people are. Because sometimes I can get to thinking, Abraham just succeeded, Moses just succeeded, David just succeeded. And yet the Bible is very honest about how broken and about how sinful these guys are. If you look at Abraham's life, it's like this. Just up and down. He has some triumphs of faith, and then almost immediately he fails. And he has some triumphs of faith, and then he fails. You know, and I like to think, if God showed me a vision of animals cut in half and passed through those things, I feel like, you know, just speaking personally, I'd never have to struggle with my faith again. If he showed me that, I'd be good. You know, it's like he would put a lump sum deposit of faith in my bank account, and I'd just withdraw the rest of my life. I tend to think like that, and yet it's entirely wrong because, A, I can't do that. B, Abraham couldn't do that. C, nobody else in the world can do that. That's not how faith works. But Abraham's meekness, or Moses' meekness, was in the fact that he was entirely submitted to God. We see David. David was, we see his meekness come out in his dealings with Saul. Early on in his life, Samuel came to him and anointed him, said, you're going to be the king. You're God's chosen king. And then for the next few years, the seated king, 
Saul kind of went back and forth with him. He loved him sometimes. He hated him sometimes. And then he tried to kill him over and over and over again. There was even a time, perhaps you're familiar with the story, where Saul goes to the edge of a cave to relieve himself, and David slides out and slices a piece off of his cape. And then when Saul walks away, David comes out and says, Look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Let's call a truce. And yet Saul still was evil towards David. And yet David remained submissive and faithful because he knew, he knew who God was and what God had said. Jeremiah. Now, anybody know Jeremiah's nickname, biblically? The weeping prophet. The role of Old Testament prophet was not one for the faint of heart. Because really, what God called these men to do was to go to a people who were hard of heart, who did not want to hear what they said, and to say hard things. We see it with Jonah. Jonah gets sent to Nineveh, and Jonah says, I don't want to go. And then he finally obeys and goes, and then he gets mad at God for saving him. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a faithful prophet over the years, and he says hard things to Israel over and over and over again, but to no avail. Israel rejects and rebels. But Jeremiah spent his life bearing the word of God to a difficult people, a stopped-up-in-the-ears people. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, willing to bear the word of God to a difficult people unto his death. And in his dying, in his dying, he prays, God forgive them. Now again, that's suffering with patience and without resentment. Now it wasn't because Stephen was some extra holy Christian in that moment. It was because the Holy Spirit was holding him together in that moment. The Holy Spirit was empowering him to have that kind of faith in that moment. We see meekness in Paul, his willingness to give up his life for the sake of Christ and the church. Paul had a really good life as a Pharisee. Paul was well respected in his community. Paul had upper tier standing among the Pharisees and among the Jews and among the Romans. And yet, because of Christ, he gave it all up and says in Philippians 3, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Paul experienced some pretty harsh stuff, shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonment, starvation, and finally death. And then ultimately, as I've said, the, the, the perfect fulfillment of each of these Beatitudes is Jesus. Because all of the men, all of the examples that I have noted here, they all failed. They were all imperfect. They all exhibited meekness, but they ultimately all failed because they were sinful. And yet, when we consider each of these in turn, each of these Beatitudes in turn, we come to that conclusion, I can't do this. I can't perfectly endure suffering with patience. I can't endure suffering without resentment. I can't, I can't go through something hard and not get mad. I can't always respond perfectly in faith. And the answer to that realization is not ball it up, throw it away, and go home. The answer to that is, well, who, who can? Who can do this stuff? Who can perfectly embody all of these things? And Matthew's point is, really Jesus' point, because Jesus is the one saying it, Jesus' point is, it's not you, it's me. 
It's his point. Jesus is our supreme example of meekness, perfect strength in perfect humility, perfect leadership with perfect grace. Now, I will ask your forgiveness right up front because as, as your pastor and as your, as your leader, I will fail. I will exhibit strength sometimes when I shouldn't. I will not be as humble at times when I should be. I will not exhibit and give you perfect leadership. I will not give you perfect grace. I'll try, but I won't do it. I, I, I will fail because God hasn't called me to be a perfect leader. God's called me to follow the perfect leader. God's called me to look to the perfect leader. So he gives us an example of this in Philippians chapter 2. It's called the great, one of Paul's two great Jesus hymns in the New Testament. The early church put these texts to music, and they would sing it in their gathered worship services. But in Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the, the form of God, or he was equal with God, he didn't count that as something too great to be held on to, but humbled himself by taking on the form of a human, taking on the form of a servant, even unto death, and therefore God has highly exalted him. That's the perfect example of meekness, knowing who God is, being in right relationship with God, and yet humbling ourselves for the sake of the good of others and the glory of God. And so you see there, what is meekness? It's a true view of oneself. It's expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with others. How do I know if I'm meek? I need to look at how I'm responding and reacting to others. If you want to know if you have Christian meekness, evaluate your relationships. How's your relationship with your spouse? How's your relationship with your family, with your coworkers? That's where Christian meekness lives. It's two things. It's the attitude towards myself and the expression of that in my relationship with others. If I don't in my heart think I'm a sinner, that will come out in how I respond to you. I'll be judgmental. I'll be impatient with you. I'll expect you to never fail. But if I am fully aware of who I am as a sinner, forgiven before God, then I will extend that grace to you. I'll be gracious with you. I'll be kind to you. I'll bring you back to this over and over and over again because this is where I will live. Any thoughts or questions at this point on meekness? All right, let's move on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Oh, let me go back real quick. There's a promise to each of these. Meekness is promise is the inheritance of the earth. Now, some of you may be saying, I feel like I'm pretty meek and I'm not inheriting anything. Now, I told you from the get-go, these have a now and not yet fulfillment. If we understand what Matthew's saying, if we understand what Mark is saying, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and is going forward and is being established in his church, we've inherited a lot. If we rightly understand the kingdom of God, we have inherited a lot. We've inherited a huge family with a rich history of God's presence and deliverance and faithfulness. See, Theresa's history doesn't just exist right here in Person County, Theresa's history goes all the way back to Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. Theresa's got history in 
the European continent as the gospel spread across. Theresa's got history in the people who brought the gospel across the Atlantic and planted churches here and the, the great revivals and the great awakenings. Theresa's got history with all of church history. We've inherited a lot. And yet what we've inherited now through the gospel is not even worth comparing with what we will receive in heaven. Romans 8.32 says that if God gave us his son Jesus Christ, he will give us everything he has. You ever thought about that? You ever tried to think about what all God has? I'm going to take that as a no. So you go ahead and think about that. But we will inherit the earth. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I put a quote there on your notes. Here in the fourth beatitude, the eye of the soul is turned from the self toward God. There is a longing after righteousness that I urgently need, but no, I do not possess. I know that I need God. I know that I need to want to God. I know that I need to pray and to read my Bible and to invest myself in the Christian community, but I can't do that on my own. As a matter of fact, I know that without the Holy Spirit, I won't do that. I will choose other things over that. And so you see there on your notes, the previous three Beatitudes have had us look at ourselves, have had us see that there is no solution within ourselves, that there's no comfort within ourselves, that there's no hope within ourselves. But this Beatitude teaches us to look for a solution. And in looking for a solution, we have to go outside. There's nothing in here. Although, that's what we try to do more often than not. Yeah? We try to, we try to deal with things on our own. If we know we need to read the Bible more, we, we don't pray about it. We just decide, I need to read the Bible more. If I know that I need to do this, that, and the other, I fear that we, we don't start with prayer. We just start with doing it. And yet the Lord invites us to come to him in prayer. And so this beatitude drives us from within and drives us out to find a solution outside of ourselves. It's important to note that salvation from sin is not so much from an outside force that works against us, like rising floodwaters that would threaten to overcome us. We like to think about sin like that, like a flood that's coming to get us. But salvation is not so much from sin like that. Rather, it's primarily salvation from ourselves. It's primarily salvation from the sin of our own hearts. The sin that lives and lurks in our own hearts. And so when we recognize that our need for salvation, but we try to earn it through our own powers and our own efforts, we're being contradictory. When we recognize that we need salvation, and then we try to do it ourselves, we are being contradictory because these first three beatitudes would tell us there's nothing within me that's good there's nothing within me that can save me i need someone greater i need someone who perfectly exhibits these things but yet our natural response is to pull up our sleeves and try and do it ourselves our, our natural response is trying to behave enough so that god will Accept us. Now, I've, said this, I've shared this with other folks before. I'll share it with you guys. So maybe you can relate. There was a period in my life where when I would sin, whether it was intentional or unintentional, I, you know, 
which is an everyday occurrence. But when I would sin, I would intentionally not listen to Christian music. I would think to myself, I can't, in good conscience, listen to Christian music knowing that I just sinned. God knows that I'm a hypocrite. And I know that I'm a hypocrite, so I can't listen to Christian music. I can't read my Bible right now because I've been in sin. And I thought that that was somehow an act of repentance. Now, I'll just keep my distance, God. I got it. I'll be back later. When I, I, I'll be good for a while, and then I'll feel comfortable listening to Christian music or reading my Bible or doing this, that, and the other. And it never failed. When I would do that, I would get further from God, and I would never come back. I would just get further away. I would walk further and further away. And that's, that's our default response to sin. We try to fix it ourselves. We try to behave our way out of it. Just like when I get on one of my children. You know, they want something, and then they disobey, and I don't give it to them. And, and they'll say, well, I'm ready to obey now. Like, that's going to change my mind. And if, you have, you know, if you're a parent in the room, you know, it's a natural child response. But that's how we respond to God. All right, God, I'll obey now, or I'll do my best now. Just be kind to me, or get rid of this suffering, or don't punish me. Whatever we, we are thinking is going on. But you see on your notes that Jesus does not say, blessed and happy are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. He doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for an easy life. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for a life without trouble. That's not what he says. The implication is that earthly happiness and blessedness are not the highest goals of the Christian. Now that's difficult. Because I would like to think that if I behave, I would like to think that if I'm moral, I would like to think that if I attend church and read my Bible and do my devotions, that life should go pretty easy. I would like to think that if I am diligent with my time and my resources and my health and everything else, that God will honor that and just give me the life that I want. And what ends up happening is we start to treat God as a means to the life that we want. We start to treat God as just a way to get to where we want to be. But what Jesus is saying is that an easy, happy, stress-free life is not the highest goal of the Christian. Jesus' point is that righteousness is the highest goal of the Christian. Righteousness, holiness, is the highest goal of the Christian. Happiness, you see, happiness follows righteousness. We, we try to do it the other way. We try to be happy and then be righteous. But biblically, righteousness comes before happiness. We even see it, this is not in your notes, it just came to Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. How is it that I enter into the presence of God? It's through righteousness. And in the presence of God there is eternal pleasure. Righteousness before happiness. When we put happiness before righteousness, we're just dooming ourselves to misery. We're just trying to push a ball up a hill and let it roll back down again. It's just going to be frustrating. So what is righteousness? What's this righteousness that Jesus is talking about? 
What's the biblical meaning of the word? Well, it's best to understand this word as describing two theological terms, justification and sanctification. You might know what justification means. Getting what you don't deserve. That's a fruit of it. That's grace. We, we, we are, God gives us grace through justification. Right. So justification is a, is a legal term or a medical term in which God or an authority pronounces something about you. So in a, in a, in a legal courtroom, it would be the judge saying, you know, innocent. Now, God can't rightly do that with us, yeah? God can't look at us as we stand and say, you are innocent of sin. Because we are, in fact, not innocent. We are, yeah, we are not innocent of sin. We are guilty. I used to think justification was actually something that happened to me, like something physically or internally happened. But that's not the root of the word. The root of the word is that God chooses to treat me differently. I keep a quote in the front of my Bible. It absolutely rocked my world. And it rocked my world so much that I put it here in the front of my Bible. But here's the quote. He says, Justification has nothing to do with whether I'm sinful or not. Justification is my status before God. And he goes on to say, Though I am black and dark and still sinful, God regards me as righteous. So here's what justification means. It means that God changes how he sees us, even though nothing about us has yet changed. I used to struggle a lot in my Christian life because I would still sin. I would still struggle with sin. And I would think, if, I'm, if I've been justified, why am I still struggling with this sin? But justification is more about how God regards us. God changes how he interacts with us, even though we still are sinful. But it's through justification that we begin the process of something called sanctification. I know what that means. Yeah, becoming more like Jesus. Growing into Jesus. Maturing into Jesus. I can never be sanctified... If I haven't been justified, if God hasn't changed how he treats me, how he sees me because of Jesus, I'll never grow in Christ-likeness. These things in the Beatitudes will never become true of me. So sanctification, this was very helpful to me when I figured this out. Sanctification is just a maturing process. One that starts when salvation comes and one that does not finish until I die. You'll find out as you get to know me better, I keep a lot of quotes in the front of my Bible. A quote there, pictures, quotes, quotes, quotes. There's a picture of my shoe with tears on it. I'll tell you that story later. But one of those quotes says this. The Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. Here's what he means. It's living the same way in the same direction until I die. It's becoming more like Jesus every day until I die. It's becoming a better husband, a better father, a better pastor until I die. For you, it's about becoming a better 
husband or a wife or a man or woman or whatever you do. It's about becoming more Christ-like in every facet of your life until we go to be with God. Upon which God will rid us of sin entirely. And that is a day that we should look forward to. And so what is righteousness? It includes both of these things. It means a desire to be free from sin in all its forms. We call this something the doctrine of imputation is, is the big phrase for it. But what that means is that Christ has exchanged natures with us. God doesn't just sweep our sins under a rug. God doesn't just lay Jesus over top of us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, it says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. Now that word become can also mean metamorphosis. Like a caterpillar's change into a butterfly. A change of nature. That on the cross, God in his supernatural ability caused me, Ben, to become the one on the cross. So Ben's sinful nature actually died on that cross. And through the gospel, God imparted, or the word is imputed, or put within me the righteousness of Jesus. And so it's not that I'm just behind the badge of Jesus, it's that my sin actually died on the cross. How radical is that? And that God has put into me the righteousness of Christ. And that's now the righteousness in which I live. And so here's some things, what it means to be righteous in a negative sense. It means a desire to be free from sin. A desire to be right with God. The Christian knows that sin keeps him or her from God. We know that sin comes between us and God. And we have a desire to be rid of that. A second thing it means is to have a desire to be free from the power of sin. From the power of sin. The Bible says that the world is presently controlled by Satan. That he's the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says that he has blinded the world to the things of God. And you know that. If you are a Christian and you're walking with God, you have come to see things in very different light than you did before. And we desire to be rid or freed from the power of sin that blinds us to those things. This one's hard. But a third thing is a desire to be free from the desire for sin. To hunger and thirst after righteousness means that we desire to be free from the desire for sin. See, the Christian, when, when we examine ourselves in the light of Scripture, we not only discover that we are bound by sin, but we discover that we actually love sin quite deeply. We realize that our heart is turned towards sin, that we love the things of the darkness. It says it in multiple places. We all know John 3.16. In John 3.19, there's a terrifying verse that says, the light came into the world and men preferred the darkness. I quoted this on Sunday, Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, no one does good, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. It says our mouths are like an open grave. The Bible's picture of us without the gospel is not pretty. And we need to reckon with the fact that without Christ, we love sin. We desire sin. And even after salvation, we still struggle against that. For instance, if you get into an argument 
And you need to have that last word. And it doesn't matter how much havoc or harm you bring to that other person, you're going to get that last word. That's sin. It lurks in every place. And if we're honest, we desire it. And we long, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness longs to be free of that desire. And so positively, positively, hungering and thirsting for righteousness means a desire to be positively holy in every way. It means I want to be with God all the time. It means I want to be like God in every way. It means I want to hide the word in my heart that I might not sin against God. We see David praying this in Psalm 19, which I just quoted Psalm 19, verse 14. But he says, keep back your servant from unintentional sins. How often do you pray against your unintentional sins? How often do you pray against your intentional sins? If you're like most of us, it's usually only afterwards. Lord, forgive me. But David's praying, God, keep me even from the things I don't mean to do because I want to be positively holy. It means to be like the New Testament man, Jesus Christ. It means a supreme desire to know God and to be in fellowship with Him, to walk with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the light of truth. And I asked you this earlier, what does the words hunger and thirst, what does that mean? What does it teach us? It speaks of a great desire. It means to be desperate, starving, striving. It means that we realize our urgent need for God in every way. And then look at the promise. For those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness in this way, what's the promise? (laughs) Satisfaction. My goodness, satisfaction. What do we want in life? We want to be satisfied. We want to be content. We We want to have our cup full. We want it to run over. We want to be enjoyed. We want to enjoy. We want to be with God. One pastor notes, when God creates a hunger and thirst in the soul, it is so that he may satisfy it. When God creates a hunger and a thirst for righteousness within us, it's so that we come to him. God intends to satisfy his people by giving them himself. God intends to satisfy his people by entrusting himself to them. Now, Last thing I'll say, Revelation 21, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with where? I know. Man. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What a beautiful picture. That there's coming a day that no sin can derail, brothers and sisters. There's nothing going on in your life, no sickness, no hurt, no worry, that can take away the promise of God with us for eternity. If you are in Christ, there's nothing that can take that away. I shared this with a group we met to pray on Tuesday morning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Brothers, what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be with Christ not yet appeared. We will be sinless. We will be perfect. We will be eternally secure and satisfied. We, we're not there yet. What we will be has not yet appeared. But when he does appear, when he does appear, John says, we shall see him as he is. 
Do you know what we can't see right now? We can't see God as he is right now. He's too holy. We can't even look at the ball of fire that he created called the sun without getting damage to our eyes. And the sun is nothing compared to the glory of God. And we think, I just want to see God. It would kill us right now to see God. And yet, and yet, there is a promise that when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, when we pursue God through the gospel, there's a promise that there's coming a day when God will recreate our eyes so that we can look at him and not die. We will look at him and love him and enjoy him and know him. So it's not really a a hard thing to think when Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ because that's far better. You see, this world, brothers and sisters, holds, it holds nothing for us. There are a lot of good things here. There are a lot of joys here. There are a lot of things that we should pursue and give ourselves to. I take great delight, immense delight in my family. But my family leads me to love God. I should bring my family to God. This world is not our home. This world is not our hope. Our hope is in God. And the Beatitudes bring us over and over again to the fact that we need God in every way and that God faithfully satisfies those who come to Him in faith. The last thing I'll say, and I'll ask uh, if y'all have questions. The last thing I'll say is this. Um, There's a reason why the world is broken. There's a reason why the world is broken. It's because people do not live this way. It's because people do not have the gospel. Maybe you recognize in your own life now that you aren't embracing the gospel in ways that you need to. But I think I said last week that we should have peace and harmony in our homes because of the gospel. Not an absence of sin, but the presence of the gospel. And we need to not only live and embrace the gospel in our homes, we need to bring people into our lives so that they embrace, that, so that they encounter the gospel. The world needs people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world needs us to be forthright with the gospel. The world needs Jesus, just like we do. Just like we talked about on Sundays with Mark. Jesus came so that men might know him and receive him and in him find life. He came to establish the kingdom, which is the mission of God. He came to seek and save the lost, which is our mission as well. So, uh, I'm going to pray in just a minute, but any thoughts or questions about any of that? All right. If you, if you need me afterwards, I'll be down here for a few minutes. But let's, let's pray together as we close. Lord, I'm grateful that you do save, that you call us to yourself, that you deal with our sin. Lord, I'm grateful that you justify us and that you sanctify us. Lord, teach us that we are all in the church, on the path. Toward in, we, we are all in sanctification. We are all being made more like Jesus. None of us are perfect. That's not a pass for sin but it is the recipe for fellowship. 
Lord, teach us true meekness. Teach us to know you rightly, to know ourselves rightly, to know each other rightly. Lord, give us through the power of the Holy Spirit a hunger and a thirst for righteousness because you satisfy. Teach us Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, what a privilege it is to have your word. What a privilege it is, God, to have one another. Lord, help us to treasure those things and help us, Lord, to see the lost and the poor and the downtrodden. And just as you went to them, God, drive us out to go to them. Tell us in your word, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I pray that we would follow in that way. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful evening. I will see you all Saturday. <laughs> the picnic.